ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Welcome to another week of The Country Hour. I'm Selena Green. Well, we had some interesting weather overnight as tropical cyclone Kiralee moved from the corner of the far northeast of South Australia over into New South Wales. Did you cop any of it? I'm going to check in on one of the locations. That got a big dumping in just a sec, but if you did get some interesting weather or some rain, please let me know how much out your way. My talkback number 1300 222891 or the text line is 0467 922891. Speaking of water... You might have a lot of questions about the federal government's water buyback scheme in the Murray-Darling Basin. What is known about how that's going so far? The first initial buyback round, we're probably going to be expecting you know, high levels of interest from some groups that are to sell water to the government in certain valleys. I'm expecting the government won't need to actually recover all their water through buybacks. The quantity of water that needs to be purchased will be a result of the success or otherwise of some of those other water recovery projects. More on that to come in this half an hour. But yeah, let's start with rainfall today and 70 millimetres of it was recorded at Tibberborough in the far northwest of New South Wales by this morning. The highway from Packsaddle to Warragate was closed due to flooding. Madison Gilby-French works at Tibberborough and described what the weather's been like. Uh, it started raining actually last night. It was actually very light around about 9 o'clock. And then I think around about midnight is when it started getting heavier. But it was actually probably about 3, 4 o'clock this morning that it just started bucketing. Yeah. Is it that monsoonal type rain you're getting? Uh, well, it kind of looked very similar to the storm that hit Broken Hill a couple of years ago that destroyed roofs. Oh, right. So you had a strong winds with the rain? Yeah, only like short bursts, though. Yeah. Now, uh, how's the shop and the, the uh, businesses going there and the residents? Uh, no one's being flooded, are they? <laughs> uh, it's getting pretty close to needing sandbags if it doesn't stop things. All right. You got a couple at the shop? Uh, no, but as soon as my boss comes back, I'll probably go down and grab some from the SES yard. Yeah, we had a bit of warning about this system coming, so most people would have been prepared, I would think. Everyone was prepping. I think we were more worried about a power outage than what we were the rain. (laughs) Um, So everyone started topping up their jerry cans, making sure that everything was up to date. The SES people that were available around here started topping up um, the sandbags and everything, and I think there's a couple that are on call just in case of emergencies. And we're being told it's fairly widespread, so uh, hopefully a lot of properties around that Tipperborough through to Whitecliffs area are getting some of this. Yeah, actually I'm pretty sure Milprinka's probably getting hammered with it too. Yeah. As I said, it's going to extend a fair way south. It's not going to come as far south as Broken Hill, but we certainly will keep an eye on it. Madison, stay dry. (laughs) We'll try. Sounds like it was a bit of a challenge, though, this morning. That is Madison Gilby-French there, works at Tuberborough, and she was chatting with Andrew Schmidt. Well, more summer rain has been a welcome sight for many in parts of far northwestern New South Wales. 
Uh, the Wild Deserts Project in the Sturt National Park, that's around 450 kilometres north of Broken Hill. Some native species are resurfaced when typically in these hotter months they wouldn't be seen. Ecologist Dr Rebecca West spoke to Lily McEwer about the excitement of the rains and the flow-on effects for native species. So the rain started for us late Sunday afternoon and then really picked up overnight and we've just measured 94 millimetres this morning. How is that? Are you pretty happy with that downpour? Uh, we are very ecstatic. We are like small excited children when you get that amount of rain and just the, the system and being able to hear the rain on the tin roof and the wind out there, it just yeah, it makes the whole family very excited. Did you get the rains that we had a few weeks ago? Yeah, we, we missed out here on the rains in January, early in January, that a lot of other people got. Yeah, we're really pleased to get this. It was looking quite dry out here in comparison to some places a bit further east and south of us. And it's probably still looking quite wet at the moment. Obviously, you've just had the rain. What have you sort of noticed since the rains have come? So at the moment, we've still got actually rain on the roof and, and winds picking up. So, yeah, we're still feeling ex-cyclone Kiralee here. But we've been out for a big paddle around the yard this morning. So the kids have had their gumboots on and enjoying splashing in puddles, which for desert children is actually a pretty rare experience. And, yeah, myself and my husband, Reese are also ecologists. And so we're really excited because... We can hear the calls of the burrowing frogs already out and about and enjoying this rain. So, yeah, those guys will burrow down into the sand dunes out here and sit down there for months or years just waiting for a big enough rainfall event and then they come back up to the surface. And so, yeah, you can hear them calling and imagine that they're just singing and so happy that the rain's fallen at this time and, um, and that they can come out and enjoy it too. Wow, so are you going to be seeing them around a bit more when you sort of normally wouldn't? Yeah, so we, we expect that a rainfall like this and the timing of this rainfall, so in the warm months, will probably trigger them to breed. So, yeah, there'll be lots of calling over the next few days while they all try and find mates. And obviously for them, it's pretty urgent because they haven't been able to breed for quite a few few months. We haven't had a rain like this here since 2022. So yeah, they'll be they'll be calling away and um, finding their mates, and then yeah, trying to get their eggs laid so that they can hopefully get their tadpoles out and grown into adults before all the water dries up. Are you expecting that you'll see some other sort of animals come out and enjoy this water? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, rain in the desert obviously brings about lots of different changes. So we often see water birds that you wouldn't normally expect to see in, in the desert. So lots of the ducks come to, to use the water here. We get pelicans, yeah, we get lots of grebes and things like that. So that's really exciting. And we also see lots of birds rock up. So all the birds that yeah move around Australia a lot following these great rainfall patterns, we'll expect to see here in the next few months as well. And these burrowing frogs, do you think that they'll sort of stick around for a little while after these rains? Yeah, so the burrowing frogs will, will come out, they'll do their thing, and then yeah, as it starts to dry, dry up, they dig their burrows back down under the sand. They make a sort of membrane around themselves, and then they'll just sit there, and we call it Eastervate. So it's a bit like a hibernation, but it, it's not quite hibernating, and they'll just sit down there, shut themselves down, and wait for the next rain. So yeah, I think we'll, we'll see these frogs out and about for the next few months, certainly, and then yeah, their time to, to head back down underground will come, unfortunately. Were you thinking that you'd see see the frogs out and about sort of at this time of year? No. So unless you've got rain, you won't see them in the desert. So despite being, some people would say, the most abundant vertebrate in the desert, you don't see them unless you've got the rain. So, yeah, no, we're really excited. It's a great opportunity. You can learn lots about them while they're up above the surface. 
and, and yeah, sort of, yeah, watch how they go over the next, next few months. And will this, I guess, set you up quite well, these rains for the next, you know, couple of months and, and for the park itself? Yeah, we, we expect that a rain like this at this time of year will really get all of the vegetation growing. The soil's nice and warm, so it's really good for things to germinate. So um, lots of the grass species do really well when you get a rain like this at this time of year. And obviously then with lots of grass comes lots of invertebrates, so little insects, so things that these species we've got out here can eat. So out in uh, wild deserts, we've got big population of bilbies and two different species of bandicoot, and they love eating all those sorts of things. So going to be really valuable for all the animals that already live here at wild deserts and also this year we're hoping to bring a couple more species back to the desert so yeah i think having a rain like this is just going to set that up to be you know much higher chance of success than if we hadn't had a rain like this and those species that you're going to be introducing is that are they species you've had up there before so no, we've got the last two species on our project list. So one of them is the western quoll, which is a native predator with spots all over it. They're sort of the size of a cat, but they're a marsupial. And then also a burrowing betong, which is a member of the kangaroo family. They're sort of the size of a football. They, yeah, they really thrive on having good, good damp soils to dig their burrows in. And then they also eat vegetation. So having a rain like this is really going to help to have lots of food plants available for them. That's ecologist for the Wild Deserts Project in the Sturt National Park, Rebecca West, and she was speaking there to Lily McEwer. It's 14 minutes past 12. Well, speaking of water, more details are emerging about the Commonwealth Government's recent tender to buy water entitlements from willing sellers in six catchments in the Murray-Darling Basin. The government had wanted to buy 44.3 gigalitres of water to complete part of the Murray-Darling Basin plan's bridging the gap target. As Emily Doak reports, details of 33 tenders have been published on the government's Tender website. There's no details about the amount of water that's been purchased or the price per megalitre. But based on the seller's address, 11 contracts worth more than $27 million are in the Namoy Valley and there's seven in the Lachlan for more than $6.3 million. There's eight contracts with buyers in the New South Wales Murray system worth more than $6.5 million, one in the Border Rivers worth $10,000 and another $15.6 million in contracts are with sellers who have city-based addresses. Water broker Tom Rooney isn't surprised that most of the water appears to have come from the north. There was only a small water recovery actually in the Murray Valley uh, and the Murray Valley was focused only in New South Wales. By my memory, it was about 10,000 megalitres that they were looking at recovering in that Murray Valley area. And the, most of the other targets they were looking at recovering were from the Lachlan up. So that is consistent. Uh, the, the sort of reporting that is occurring at the moment, and if you can deduce the potential area in which the water is being contracted in by the postcode, that is consistent with the objectives of government, and it's not. We're not surprised see those types of results. And Tom Rooney, you've been in the water market trade for a long time as a broker. As you said, you've seen these sort of buybacks in the past. We know this is the first of uh, a new round of buybacks. There are more to come. What sort of appetite do you think there is amongst irrigators across the Murray-Darling Basin to be participating in in selling their water to the government? Look, I think that... um We saw the Minister making particular statements around the closure of this uh, tender round, is that they were 
overwhelmed with responses in relation to this round. I think the first initial buyback rounds, we're probably going to be expecting you know, high levels of interest from some groups that are to sell water to the government in certain valleys. I'm expecting the government won't need to actually recover all their water through buyback, which could be as high as a 1,000 gigalitres or a million megalitres of water or 10-odd percent of the water in the Murray-Darling Basin. Um, I think there will be a suite of programs that we'll see issued out between now and 2007 when the basin plan's due to come at an end. So just the, the quantity of water that needs to be purchased will be a result of the success or otherwise of some of those other water recovery projects. And you mentioned certain valleys as being, um, you know, potentially having a lot of interest. Are you able to tell us or share which ones you think will be most interested in that? I think really the the interest for participation in the Commonwealth will be expecting to see over the next three or four years will be strongly related to the success or otherwise of those underlying commodities which are grown in those valleys. And if those commodities are experiencing hardship, I'm expecting to see uh, greater interest from those growers that are growing those types of commodities around participating in the Commonwealth. So, for example, with a wine glut at the moment, grape growers could be potentially looking for opportunities there. Yes, that's a good example. So where you've got, uh, for instance, actually devaluations which have occurred in uh, water values in some of those areas as a result of people trying to sell their water in the, in the private temporary market. And I think for some of those people, it will provide them with opportunities to spread the extent of their potential sell order in the market to a Commonwealth buyback. Um, and I think it will bring additional demand into those markets um, in that area. And I think the, the sellers will be probably will find that we'll get more interest from sellers in those areas, such as, as you've given an example, in the south, to strongly, where there's a wine glut in, we're expecting to see stronger demand in those areas compared to, say, commodities that might be stronger at the moment, such as dairy. That's Tom Rooney from Waterfind, and he was speaking there to Emily Doak. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, Northern Australia's live export trade is in limbo with the cattle industry waiting still for Indonesia to issue permits, import permits for 2024. So far this year, there's been no cattle exported from the Darwin port, which is highly unusual. And there's currently a couple of export ships anchored off the Northern Territory coast waiting for this permit issue to be resolved. Well, to get a better understanding of what's been happening, Matt Brand spoke to exporter Patrick Underwood, who has recently flown to Jakarta for meetings. I'm in Jakarta. I've been here the last couple of days meeting with um, importers, the embassy, and you know, just trying to understand sort of where these permits are because there's um, there's a, a definite need for them, certainly from, from exporters, um, certainly from shipping companies, but also importantly from, from importers. There's, there's actually um, good demand over here at the moment and cattle are selling. And the longer these permit, the permit issue goes, the sort of bigger the the gap in in supply, which you know will affect them down the track. So we're now into the month of February, and Indonesia is yet to issue import permits for the year 2024. Is that right? That's correct. So there's often some sort of a delay. Like as exporters, we sort of don't book ships in the first couple of weeks of January. It's a, to be frank, it's an opportunity to sort of catch up. And December's a 
a busy month, um, but uh, this is certainly the longest I can remember. I can't remember going an entire month, um, and now we're sort of into February. And to be honest, we're we're still unsure. Like I've I've, I've spoken to a number of people over here. There was a a strong view that around the twentieth they were going to be coming out in the in the following five days, but we're sort of past that period now, and actually starting to head towards the Indonesian presidential election, which is on the fourteenth of February. So there's a, there's a little bit of a concern that if we sort of miss this next couple of days, that we're sort of looking at that mid February and and even mid February plus plus a week, I guess, because you know you would consider that the days leading up to and the week after the election, there'll be a, a lot of things happening in Indonesia and possibly no permits coming out. So it is a, a, a great concern. Yeah, I think of here in Australia, you sort of just before a federal election and afterwards, you know, bureaucracy sort of really does shut down a fair bit. Indonesia would be the same. It's a little bit different here. They they they, they tend to run the the same. Um, like within the different departments, they they continue for six months after election, then have a, a changeover. But but nonetheless, these permits are what they do require is a signature from the trade minister. It used to be with the Department of Agriculture, now it's the Department of Trade. Um, so you know we're relying on a minister's signature to get import permits. So this waiting period, how much is it hurting Australia's northern live cattle trade? It's definitely hurting some individual players. So any any exporter that took on a, a commitment with a ship um, and a customer and, and, and a yard, um, it, it, it's obviously hurting. And um, that's of concern. It, we're certainly lucky that it's corresponded with a, a very wet month, particularly the second half of January has taken, you know, a lot of Australia by surprise, the, the amount of rain and how widespread it is. So we are in a period where it's where it's very wet, and, and, and you know, to be frank, if we're trying to do a ship last week or next week, we'd we'd struggle with supply. So that part we're lucky. If I think if we had, you know, four to six to, to seven weeks without permits in any other time of the year, it would affect the production side of things, the producers. Whereas this is more about the actual supply chain. But it's important to note that it's in, impacting importers because you know one thing about importers is they sell cattle every day of the year. And if they have a, a gap of, you know, again, if it's four, six, seven weeks without any cattle from Australia, then it's going to impact them down the track. And they've got Ramadan fast approaching. That's right. So the, the, the peak supply periods or sales periods will be um, the week leading into Ramadan and certainly the week after where they, you know, they sell significant volumes of Australian cattle. So most of the importers up here are holding sales back selling to select customers and just restricting to a sort of per day sales side of things so and, and holding them back for that peak demand period so I guess if you if you if you try and run it through the fact that that Ramadan will finish sort of late late March it will, it will at least correspond to the dry season um, we, we assume that the you know rain's going to finish March or around Easter so the good news is Australia will have you know significant volumes of cattle available then but you know, they do like to feed cattle for 80 to 100 days and you can't do that if you've had to sell you, you know, most of your stock and then, and then re-import. That's Patrick Underwood, who's the Managing Director of Australian Cattle Enterprises. He's speaking there to Matt Brand. Apparently, according to ABS data, the last time the Darwin port had no live exports for a whole month was 34 years ago, which is back in 1990. Uh, you're on the South Australian Country Hour. With Selena Green, it's 24 minutes past 12. Let's head off to the Weather Bureau. Simon Timkey is our forecast today. Hello, Simon. 
G'day, Selena. Oh, we've come off some hot and rather interesting weather across parts of South Australia. Yeah, we sure have. It's, uh, it was a, a very hot day over most parts of the state yesterday ahead of a change which moved across sort of during the afternoon and early evening. Uh, and that moved across the, the west and the south yesterday and has continued to move northeastwards today. Uh, and whilst that happened, we had ex-tropical cyclone Kiralee moved down over the far northeast and brought some some pretty wet conditions uh, over the far northeast of the state. Uh, in the, the 24 hours to um, to 9am this morning, we had uh, had 62 millimetres uh, measured at uh, at Moomba. Uh, and just across the border in southwestern Queensland, Upper Mary had 74 millimetres, Tipperborough had 79 millimetres. So some, some pretty wet conditions over the very far northeast of the state. But that... that Low, the ex-tropical cyclone has moved um, eastwards now uh, and the, the, the warning that we had for that heavy rainfall over SA has been cancelled but does continue over adjacent parts of, uh, of New South Wales and Queensland. So some, some wet conditions to continue over those parts. Um, further south, we've had a band of middle and, and high-level cloud push across the west and the south of the state um, in behind yesterday's uh, change. We've, it's tried to rain out of it. We've seen isolated showers showing up on the radars, uh, even had a couple of thunderstorms out in the far west, but, but very little of that rainfall reaching the ground. I think if you get a spot or two on the ground, you will have done, uh, done pretty well out of that. So mostly dry conditions, even, uh, even following that change with, uh, with that cloud band. The, the winds following the change um, south to southeasterly in direction and, and a bit fresh at times too and I expect that we'll see them uh, increase in strength a little bit about parts of the coast with sea breezes this afternoon uh, and we do have a strong wind warning out for Spencer Gulf and Gulf St Vincent including Adelaide Metropolitan Waters for, for those uh, strong sea breezes this afternoon but even over remaining coastal waters where we don't have that warning out the, those sea breezes uh, and the south to southeasterly winds in general will be pretty fresh for the for the rest of the day so so choppy conditions out on the waters um, over the next couple of days we'll, we'll have a, a high pressure ridge push over waters to the south of our state again uh, and like last week it'll be a pretty slow moving feature so we'll dominate our weather for the rest of the week and into early next week as well so the the south to southeasterly winds persisting for a number of days um, and fresh sea breezes, even locally strong sea breezes, likely each afternoon. Um, a, a little bit less weather around, conditions remaining dry across the, the south of the state right through till Monday, but a little, little bit of weather on and off in the north. For the rest of today, even though that low has moved away to the east, Still a chance of a isolated shower or thunderstorm over the northeast pastoral and Flinders district this afternoon and evening. Possibly even a little bit of localised raised dust with some of those winds too in the far north of the state. Um, for Tuesday, a, a little bit of shower, isolated shower and thunderstorm activity persisting in the far north, sort of most frequent near the northern border but generally confined to areas north of about Coobapiti. Uh, and Wednesday, that isolated shower and thunderstorm activity will contract right up to near the northern border, dry conditions elsewhere. And then through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, pretty much dry conditions right across the state. Maybe just a slight chance of a shower or thunderstorm in the very far northeast corner. Um, temperatures remaining sort of mostly below and near average 
um, in that south to southeasterly airstream. But later in the weekend um, and early next week, so Sunday and Monday, we will start to see those winds tend around a little bit more northeasterly. And as a result, temperatures starting to rise then. So Sunday and Monday starting to get a little bit hotter in parts again, but remaining dry. Uh, so I guess as a result of all of that, very little to talk about in the way of rainfall totals. We've had those significant totals in the far northeast, but for the next four days, so for that period out to the, uh, to the end of Friday, really any rainfall is restricted to, to the far north uh, and most mostly will just be isolated less than isolated falls of less than five millimetres or so. But near the northern border, maybe the uh, odd spot picking up five to 20 millimetres with some, some thunderstorms. But over the south of the state, dry for the next week, uh, Selena. Thanks, Simon. Simon Timkey there from the Weather Bureau. It's coming up to half past 12 here on the Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hi there. Well, have you heard? Australia is going to be adopting fuel efficiency standards for vehicles sold in this country for the first time. What does that mean? for the best-selling vehicles here in South Australia, which all just happen to be large 4x4s and utilities. More on that in just a moment. And you'll find out why some are arguing for a rethink on the plan to eradicate feral deer from South Australia and how that's being done. It is a valuable resource. If and when we shoot deer, we use that meat. We have it for self-consumption. We give it to friends as well. We actually have other people come onto the property and do shoot occasionally. That's to come in this next half an hour. More on that shortly. This is all after news headlines from Chris McLaughlin. Hi, Chris. Good afternoon, Selena. Federal police say two Victorian men are due in Port Adelaide Magistrates Court today over a shipment of cocaine that alleged was concealed in a shipment of luxury buses. Police say the 139 kilograms of cocaine was hidden in the buses sent by ship and later stored at an Adelaide warehouse. Islamic groups have demanded a high-level inquiry into the actions of police after attempting to further radicalise an autistic 13-year-old boy and then arresting him on terrorism charges. A Victorian Children's Court magistrate last year dismissed charges against the teenager who was inspired by Islamic State. The magistrate said the conduct of police fell profoundly short of the minimum standards expected of law enforcement. Taiwan's chief representative to Australia says he's confident that the Pacific island nation of Tuvalu is not about to cut diplomatic ties with Taipei. That's after speculation that it could follow Nauru and give diplomatic recognition to China. And Kylie Minogue has won the award for Best Pop Dance Recording for her song Padam Padam at the Grammy Awards in Los Angeles. More ABC News at one o'clock. Thank you, Chris. Chris McLaughlin there with those headlines. Also, the federal government yesterday revealed it will introduce laws that will set fuel efficiency standards for new vehicles sold in Australia. Australia and Russia are the only developed countries which don't yet have fuel standards like Europe and the United States. Under the new laws, all new cars must reduce their carbon emissions by 2028 or manufacturers will face a penalty 
The opposition has accused the government of being heavy-handed and saying it will drive utes off Australian roads. The majority of vehicles being used on South Australia's regional roads and farms are utes and 4x4s, not just in the country. They're all over the city roads too. The top five vehicles sold in South Australia last year were, in fact, all either utilities or a 4x4. So what do these standards mean for those models? They are, well, these standards are expected to give motorists more choice of new vehicles that use less fuel. And up until now, these have only been available to buyers in overseas markets. But could it push up the price or limit the availability of petrol and diesel, diesel versions? Daryl Jacobs is the CEO of the Motor Trades Association of South Australia. He joins me. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and thanks for having me. So give us, if you can, in, in a nutshell, these standards that the, the government has announced, uh, what essentially is that going to put in place? Yeah, I, I suppose what we're trying to do is transition um, to more of a uh, cleaner environment with our vehicles um, and ultimately reduce CO2 to net zero by 2050. So the standards that um, really only dropped yesterday are looking at uh, vehicles and the average CO2 emission per kilometre that they do. Right. So this is um, obviously moving into a more sustainable future for for vehicles that we are selling in this country. Uh, I guess from an MTA perspective, you've talked about the importance of getting the balance right. Why is it important to, to I guess, move in this direction, but make sure that, uh, I guess, it's being done in a, in a controlled manner? Yeah, yeah. Look, you're exactly right there. So so really how it looks like it might work is um, if you take a car, a company that imports uh, vehicles from overseas, there'll be an average number across the, all of the cars they sell that they'll have to achieve. Now, that um, will mean that they should still be able to sell utes and SUVs, which are really important for Australians. You know, 25% of all sales are utes, and, and obviously in regional areas, we, we drive those bigger cars. They will most likely be over that number, so the, the, the car company will also then have to sell EVs, hybrids and smaller vehicles to come to this number. If they don't achieve that average number, um, they could potentially face face fines. So, so really the key outcome of this is that it needs to be a considered transition. Um, we can't just go to EVs and hybrids tomorrow. We do know they have range issues and you know um, we don't have the infrastructure to charge those vehicles, especially in regional areas. So we need to um, have considered approach that uh, um, takes into account regional Australia, metro Australia and the way that we use our vehicles um, so that we can um, transition um, through time, you know, over the next few years and achieve what we need to achieve for the uh, net zero where we're heading. Because imagine a lot of, uh, yeah, as you say, a lot of people in rural areas, a lot of farmers, they would be purchasing these very popular uh, utilities, four by fours. I think what the top sort of five vehicles sold in South Australia are these types of vehicles, the Hiluxes, the the Outlanders. Is this likely to push up the price of these types of vehicles? Yeah, that's, that's a that's a really interesting question. And I suppose one we won't be able to answer until we actually get there, but um, you know, we are starting to see hybrid vehicles or hybrid uh, ranges, I think has been announced, and, and Hiluxes and stuff like that. So ultimately, um, if there is more technology in the car and they cost more to produce, that will be passed on onto the, onto the customer. The challenge, I suppose, will be, you know, what will happen on the other end? You know, will they be more efficient? Will, you put, will the cost of putting fuel in your car um, be, you know, the same or more? And then these are sort of things that we don't know just yet. Um, I, I think the real key part is, though, for regional Australia 
is we need to be very considerate of the way we use our vehicles. Um, you know, as you said, utes, um, uh, larger SUVs. So if we go down this path of, of, of sort of ruling them out, I think we, you know, we start to have a bit of a problem. So, you know, there's a, there's a great line in the paper that was released yesterday and it says, Australia is a country that relies on cars. And I think we've got to keep that at the heart of the conversation and make sure the transition is, is very sort of planned and considers all Australians. We, as we said, the infrastructure still has some catching up to do, but with electric options for some of these popular vehicles that I just mentioned, are they becoming more available, these types of uh, electric utilities and, and 4 by 4s Yeah, no, well, not really to answer your question. I, you know, there's one ute at the moment that's fully electric and, you know, it's price prohibitive. It's $100,000. And the challenge with putting, you know, battery technology into a ute is obviously range, uh, towing, and then payload, you know, the more weight you add to the vehicle, generally the less the, it doesn't go as far, but also you can't tow as much or put as much in the back. So there's this sort of conundrum around that. I really do think you'll see youths move more to hybrid. Um, but even then, we need to understand, you know, will they maintain their, you know, sort of three-tonne towing capacity? So there's a lot to work through in that ute area. We are generally see EVs more in the passenger area. Um, your Teslas, you know, BYD's been a very successful brand. Um, and those cars generally, you know, travel up to 400-odd kilometres, but they don't really tow anything. So they're more like city or, you know, large regional hub commute sort of cars. So, so there's a lot to work through. You know, infrastructure-wise, we still don't see enough um, charging stations through regional Australia. Um, you know, when we then, uh, you know, experiences are when we get to that charging station, there's already someone there charging, so we've got to wait, um, or it's broken. Um, so there, there's a real lot to work through, and, and I suppose the other side of the coin really is around upskilling our workforce. You know, we have a lot of mechanics, technicians out there at the moment that are mechanically based. Um, we do need to make sure that those people are safe around electric vehicles, but also understand how they operate and how they can service those cars going forward. And I guess the upshot of anyone listening who's thinking, well, my ute's due for a, a replacement in the next year or, or couple of years, uh, there still will be petrol options for people who will need to, to do that. This isn't going to rule these out completely in the short term. No, no. What we'd like to see is that, you know, you might walk into a dealership and you can see a petrol option, a diesel option, a hybrid option and an electric vehicle option of all of those. Like currently the paper sort of looks as though it will sort of start in, in January 25, um, this sort of um, a fuel efficiency number, um, and will only affect new vehicle sales. So if you have purchased a car this year, and, and it's interesting to note that Australians hang on to their cars generally around about 10 years. So if you were to buy a ute um, this year, you know, it might be 10 years before you actually um, sort of come under this sort of this area. So I, I suppose um, you, you should be right. Daryl, thanks for joining us on the Country Hour. Excellent. Thank you very much and have a great day. Daryl Jacobs, he is the Chief Executive Officer of the Motor Trades Association for South Australia and the Northern Territory. It's 21 minutes to one. Well, there have been some scorching days so far this summer and along with them, some concerns raised about the transport of animals on hot days. A photo was recently shared on social media of a trailer loaded with sheep during a recent hot day here in SA, which attracted a lot of comments. We're told the trailer had been dropped off by one driver and was waiting to be picked up by another carrier. 
The Association for Livestock Transporters says there are strict guidelines when it comes to the movement of livestock on hot weather. Peter Edmonds, he's the Vice President of the Livestock and Rural Transporters Association of South Australia, and he told Brood Nindorf that they do get pictures occasionally sent through from people who are concerned. Look, there occasionally there is, but, yeah, sometimes you can down the concerns because generally, yeah, most of our members are doing the right thing because we do adhere to the, to the guidelines that are set in place by Australian Animal Welfare Standard Guidelines for land transport and also the um, fit-to-load guidelines from the MLA. Do you know what the the recent photo that, that was seen on Facebook, do you know what the situation was there? Yeah, I have followed up that actual complaint that we saw that, they were, that there was an animal welfare issue, but, yes, those sheep were within their 48 hours of maximum time off of water, and I know when they were actually delivered to the abattoirs that they uh, all walked off and we didn't have any dramas with them and they went straight on the water as they would have, as they are supposed to anyway. So they were all, they were actually loaded to the penning density guidelines. So yeah, there was no issues there as far as that goes. So it was just, just sometimes it looks a lot worse than what it actually is. But yeah, they definitely were doing the right thing. Like there was no no stress basically on the animals. They were, they were well within the guidelines. You mentioned there about the guidelines you have to follow. What are those, some of those those key points that the truck drivers have to make sure that they are doing when transporting livestock on a hot day? And and it goes to the actual, yeah, it goes back along the line as far as the people that are in charge before we actually get them. So to make sure that they're actually curfewed before they go on the truck and then that's where there is a maximum of supposedly 48 hours off of water maximum. So yeah, if, if it doesn't happen then they're that's basically what the guidelines have said and that's been um, approved sort of or agreed on across the industry as in the transporters, veterinary and obviously Animal Health Australia. Are there days that you can't transport them at, at all, a certain point? I think it's, there, there's nothing documented. I think it's as much down to the actual people in charge of the animals. So if they really think that there's a reason that they shouldn't be, then they don't. But, yeah, basically as long as they're... They're in within their limits of being off of water on that 48 hours. There's, there's no reason. It's really purely on a case by case. I think you know, and and generally, it's just it, it's it's done in a way that obviously it's it's the discretion of the people in control of the animals at the time. So and that- whether they load early or late, and look, you know, that that's some of the some of the issues we have as far as that goes. Is that you're able to to sort of most times to be able to determine whether you're going to actually load early and get there before it gets too hot or load later into the evening. So, yeah. Do you have issues with either people, you know, the ones before the, the, the livestock get picked up, the producers um, or, or truck drivers doing the wrong thing when it comes to, to transporting sheep in, in those guidelines? Or is everyone reasonably good with, with following them? Look, as far as we know, most most people are, are pretty, pretty good on that. Like, it, you know, everyone is is watching, everyone's got to do the right thing and like we say, there's, there's, everything's under a watchful eye so if anyone is doing the wrong, you know, blatantly doing the wrong thing, some will, someone will see it and report it and, you know, it'll be followed up, obviously, because um, like most people take like, animal welfare very highly regarded as, as a, you know, it, we don't like to see any of it look. This photo that was was put up on Facebook, and, and there's been others in the past, and, and comments about uh, livestock being transported on, on a hot day. Do you think people know these guidelines, or does there need to be maybe 
uh, more messaging about those rules and what truck drivers can can and can't do? I look, I think it's not just the truck drivers. It still comes back to the people either end. So you know, it's up to the to the abattoirs to. Or, or where they actually end up at the sale yard, that there is actually water available when they they received, and to the point where you know that they do have to be make sure that they've had their curfewed water before they go on the truck, and they've had access before that the previous 12 hours before that, so that they are by the time they travel that they're still within their 48 hours of being off of water. Yeah, so it's it's really it's more than just the transporters; it's actually either end being the producers that are actually loading and then the receiver is the other end to make sure that um, they're doing the right thing as well. Does there need to be more um, information out there, though? Because obviously it's the, the truck drivers are probably the ones that are being seen the most if a you know, truck is left in a certain spot, like that photo that, uh, that was seen. Do they need to just be able to say, look, you know, they are in, in within the guidelines to let people know that they are still doing the right thing? I, I think so, and I mean... It, it's really relatively available. Like you can you can Google it and uh, uh, Google the Australian Animal Welfare Standards and Guidelines. It's not very hard. Not um, it'll it'll pop up. So like the information is there. So there's no real reason that uh, people shouldn't know. And it, and it is it's a it's a part of duty of care. Of you are actually in control of those animals while they're under your supervision and and you're responsible for it. So you know you you will well within your within the law to make sure that you're doing the right thing. You know, our, our association and, and national body still take it, animal welfare into regard, you know, high regard as in, well, we only had an incident the other night where a truck had broken down on, on the highway and we had a truck underneath that, those animals again to keep them on their journey within within an hour and a half. So, you know, uh, we do rally together if there's some, uh, some sort of breakdown or um, anything like that to try and, try and make sure that um, we are doing the right thing by the animals. As Peter Edmonds, he's Vice President of the Livestock and Rural Transporters Association of South Australia. He's speaking there to Brooke Nindorf. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. With Selena Green on this Monday. Well, a large group of the state's deer hunters met on the weekend to air their concerns about the South Australian government's aerial deer culling program. That program aims to eradicate the estimated 40,000 feral deer loose across our state within a decade, or at least reduce them to a number where their population can't rebound again. Deer were introduced here in South Australia more than 150 years ago, particularly in the Adelaide Hills and the Flurio Peninsula and in the southeast, as an animal for settlers to hunt recreationally. The government estimates they cost the state's farmers $36 million in direct productivity losses each year, plus significant impacts to the environment and road safety. Some hunters don't want deer eradicated altogether so they can continue their sport, which they say has huge economic benefits to South Australia. But they've also raised concerns about how the program's being carried out. ABC reporter Eugene Boisvert went along to the meeting on the weekend. Hi, Eugene. Hi, Selena. So give us a bit of an idea of uh, what the meeting was like. Well, it was at the Narracourt Town Hall, which has a capacity of about 270 people, and pretty much every seat was full there. It was uh, They're very passionate. I wouldn't say angry, but uh, there was quite a lot of interest. A lot of people had their say. And there was people from uh, mostly the southeast, but, of course, people from Western Victoria, people from around Adelaide, and, yeah, quite a big group there. And it was organised by one of the hunters? Yeah, Jake Nicholson lives near Mount Gambier and he's a very passionate and quite good deer hunter and uh, he has um, raised issues with the 
ABC before mentioning about um, different videos about animal cruelty and the different hunting practices used by um, the aerial colours. And he organised this meeting particularly to see how much interest there was and to see if they could um, be more formal about their opposition to the program. So let's hear what some of his concerns were. Yeah, there was a couple of um, more prominent points today that kept being touched on, like you're saying, there were a consistent uh, concern. Yeah, one definitely being the erosion of landowners' rights, being forced into programs that they might not want to participate in was probably one of the biggest ones. Yeah, the humane treatment of animals and the differentiation uh, between different species. Yeah, there's a, a large number of concern of animals being dispatched incorrectly or poorly and animals suffering, whether it be through the use of the shotgun or, you know, the development of baiting and poisoning, big concerns from the community that we need to have addressed as soon as possible. The use of the shotgun and the lead into the environment was another big one. Uh, we got a resolution from the floor today that the program should not recommence unless non-toxic shot is used. So there's a, a real strong point there that people are looking into the big picture, not the short-term goals that are, are being focused on by the government departments. What else is happening to our environment because of this? And from here you're going to, you've got lots of people behind you and you want to kind of have more direction or you've got more numbers that you can prove that it's not just you who's like interested in the topic? Yeah, exactly. From here, um, look, yeah, we'll probably form some sort of committee which will help try and represent the group that was here today with a different sort of mix of people and then yeah it'd be great to work collectively with some of the the guests we had here like chassa uh, like the wild meat council and the four politicians we had here today it would be great to work together uh, to ensure the community's concerns are addressed that was southeast hunter jake nicholson there so eugene uh, you said you well you spoke to several hunters who had actually refused to be part of the aerial culling program yeah, the government uh, gives people an option to be part of the program, but if you're not, you have to say how you're going to kill deer on your property. Um, one of those uh, is Bernie Wartenberg, who spoke at the meeting. He lives in Mount Gambia, but his mother, who's uh, quite elderly, and his stepfather have a property at Hay Flat near Yankalila on the Flurio Peninsula. It simply appears that because we do not partake in the aerial culling program, that Based on their suspicions of deer on the property that I'm affiliated with, they've decided to take out an action order against the owners of the land, which happens to be my mother and stepfather. There's solid reasons for not wanting to partake in the aerial culling program, particularly as we are still compliant with the Act by shooting deer on said property, which has been done for the last 45 years. So it seems like you actually want to do it on your own property and do it well and get the meat or things like that. As has been done for the last 45 years. And yes, to not waste the meat because it is a valuable resource. If and when we shoot deer, we use that meat. We have it for self-consumption. We give it to friends as well. We actually have other people come onto the property and do shoot occasionally. There's so many factors that the, the relevant authorities don't take into account on how one needs to approach deer shooting on land. If only they would just sit down and talk rationally about how you're going to manage your plan. And of course, interesting from this meeting today, quite a number of people have said that even if you come up with what you believe to be an action plan under their action orders, it won't be approved anyway, no matter what, 
simply because you don't choose to partake in the aerial culling program. So that was Bernie Wartenberg there from Mount Gambier. Eugene, so, so what is the issue here? Where, where are the uh, the hunters essentially and the goals of the government really not meeting here? So the problem is people who have land and want to hunt deer or people who uh, just want to hunt deer and find somewhere to do it, they don't want to eradicate deer altogether because they still want to participate in their sport, which they, they love doing. So the government's goal, though, is to get rid of deer altogether. So that's where they come into conflict. So... Uh, the general manager of the Limestone Coast Landscape Board, Steve Bourne, explains why uh, it's just not working between the two groups. Where we had it issued action orders and we received plans from the from uh, from landholders, we considered the plan was not going to be adequate to drive the numbers down fast enough, um, and so that's why we undertook the compliance action and uh, went ahead and undertook aerial operations. And the numbers we shot uh, over those in that program over those land areas were were really high densities, uh, far in excess of, of what we'd been um, culling elsewhere in the region. The goal is to get rid of deer altogether, but they obviously they want to be able to shoot them for their own recreation. Do you think that's reasonable? The legislation requires uh, that landholders destroy all deer. Uh, that's the legislation, and our job as the Landscape Board is to deliver on that legislation. So uh, that's what we're doing. Uh, So that was Steve Bourne there. He is the General Manager of the Limestone Coast Landscape Board. Eugene, finally, what's happening now? Because there is a a eradication program underway and that's still going for quite a while still. Yeah, so that's um, running until 2032. At least that's when it runs out of funding. And it was supported by the former Liberal state and federal governments and now by the current governments. And there were several opposition politicians from Liberals and uh, Nick McBride, the Independent, at the forum. And they uh, said that, well, they did support it in the past, but they were upset about how it seems to be limiting the rights people have over their own properties. As Jake mentioned earlier, uh, he plans to set up a committee uh, with some of the hunters and with some of these uh, representative groups and maybe some politicians involved to formally advocate for the program to be halted. That's the aerial hunting program until their concerns are addressed. But they don't have much time um, because the main hunting period for hunters and especially for the aerial culling program is autumn, which is only a few weeks away. It certainly is. Eugene, thanks for coming in and giving us a summary of that meeting. No worries. That is ABC reporter Eugene Boisvert there. He was at that meeting. Well, finally today, an iconic South Australian rural brand is back just after a a year after it closed down. Varco Windmills existed for more than 100 years before it closed in March of last year. But the Mount Gambier-based business has been purchased and reopened by Nathan Woodruff, someone with no background in windmills. Well, it's been a fairly steep learning curve. Uh, Initially, Dean and McKay Windmills... um, they closed down, uh, everything went up for auction. When all the jigs and patterns to manufacture the Varco windmills came up for sale right at the end of the auction, there was uh, no interest. Um, and the auction auctioneer actually said to me, oh, you better come and have a talk to us after, because I'd sort of expressed a little interest. And um, we ended up making a bit of a deal, and I took on all the, all the jigs and patterns, and have since then been trying to tool up with the right machinery to go back into the manufacturing of the Varco windmill. Yeah, talk to me about restarting, you know, restarting a company like this and yeah, you said it's a bit of a steep learning curve what you've had to come to terms with. Yeah, well I've probably gone about it the worst possible way but it's how um, the cards were presented. So missing out on a lot of the the machinery, um, some of the, you know, the, the documentation of 
had a lot to sort of learn, work out the machines that the jigs require to sort of go into to, to make the various components. So it's sort of been fairly slow to get the ball rolling again, obviously starting off with absolutely no stock. It takes a fair while to, you know, by the time you order in steel and then make the various components, it's, it's um, a time-consuming project to get stock back on the shelves. Why did you walk into that auction, you know, in, just interested in the windmills to start with and, I, and how did it lead to, to now running the company? Well, uh, we've always had windmills on the farm, sort of especially where we've got bushland. A solar pump isn't uh, suited, there's too much shade. And I thought, oh, well, where am I going to get parts? We'll go to the auction and get a few few spare parts. And I've also got a bit of an engineering background and I was looking for a couple of machines for the workshop at home. So we went down to the auction and um, just had a, a bit of a, a look around and, and no one was interested in the jigs and patterns. So I thought, well, what better way to keep my own windmills going than to set up and, and do it properly. Um, so talk to me a bit about your background in terms of, you mentioned you're out on a farm, um, you're also um, you know, working as a mechanic as well, can you tell me a bit about your background? A fairly broad range of things that I've undertaken but yeah I've, I've grown up on the farm, I've got a, an interest in agriculture and farming, also taken on work as an agricultural mechanic so it's definitely a, a, a strong interest and also just a love for history I like the history of Mount Gambier. Uh, there's nothing more iconic, I, I think, than um, Varco windmills, and that's really a, a key industry that's that's left when so much else has left the town. So I was just sort of thrilled to try and take that opportunity to, to preserve it. You're still working on getting stock up, as you said. How long do you think it'll take you until you've sort of got your first windmill you know, up and, and ready to go? Um, the biggest hold-up currently is uh, we're waiting on a foundry. Foundries are slowly dying and, and closing the doors across the country. So what foundries are left have taken on a, a massive workload and the one I'm going through are working through a bit of a backlog at the moment. But depending on when they can get some castings underway for me, I'm hoping that probably by the middle of the year that we should have enough parts to start producing complete windmills but at this early stage we are producing some of the um the the prime like the key spare parts what commonly wears out on them is what we're sort of getting started first like there's just so many across the region and not just our region like they were went extensively across australia and some even went overseas Um, so there's a lot of demand for spare parts and service would you describe it as a bit of a passion project for yourself I'd definitely describe it as a passion project because if it was a get-rich-quick scheme, I definitely went down the wrong rabbit hole, I think. But I definitely see that there's still enough of a future to keep me in business. There's the new owner of Varco Windmills here in South Australia, Nathan Woodruff, and he was speaking there to Sam Radbrook. Just enough time for me to quickly let our listeners know in the uh, western inland parts of New South Wales, the Upper Western District, weather tomorrow mostly sunny, slight chance of a shower, maybe a thunderstorm. For the Lower Western District, mostly sunny, slight chance of a shower in the far eastern parts of that district, near zero chance elsewhere. The overnight temperatures will get down to around 18 Daytime temperatures are around 30 to the mid-30s. Thanks so much for your company today. It is almost time for the 1 o'clock news. Hang around. Nikolai Bailharts will be bringing you afternoons on your radio very soon. The ABC Listen app lets you take ABC Radio with you wherever you go. At home, in the gym, up a ladder... 
On the road. Interstate. Out of space. Download the ABC Listen app today. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.